0: war and peace a podcast by the international crisis group welcome back to war and peace a podcast of the international crisis group i'm your host oda oliker speaking to you from brussels Elisa is traveling this week, so I am your only host for this episode. This episode is focused on the presidential elections uh, in Turkey which just concluded with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan as uh, once again the victor. He won his runoff uh, this past Sunday and we'll be talking about what that might mean for Turkey's uh, domestic and foreign policy.
1: Kazan'ın Türkiye'dir.
0: This Sunday, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan won the presidential runoff election against Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, Daroglu, his challenger from the opposition Republican People's Party, the CHP. Erdogan's win seemed to come more easily than many expected. The initial vote was highly contested. But then the runoff went, well, it went smoothly. What it has done is secured Erdogan another five years in office at a time that is pivotal in Turkey's and indeed global history. Domestically, the country is facing a severe cost of living crisis caused by runaway inflation and the fallout of a massive earthquake, which struck southern Turkey and Syria in February and is likely to continue to strain the country's economy. Regionally, Erdogan has pressed on the fight with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, and its offshoot, the YPG, increasingly taking the battle to Syria and Iraq, where the YPG is active. On the global stage, Turkey has been carving out its role as a powerful state, a middle power that isn't the West and uh, isn't exactly the East, uh, but with an increasingly proactive and very independently minded foreign policy. Ankara has been warming up its relations with Moscow, even though it is also supporting Ukraine in the continuing war, and it has engaged in conflicts from Libya to the South Caucasus in various ways and to various extents. Unsurprisingly, this has also strained um, Turkey's relations with its uh, fellow NATO allies, particularly with the United States, as well as with the European Union, to which it remains formally a candidate country. So what can we expect from five more years of Erdogan? Uh, Same trends continuing, uh, significant shifts. What happens domestically? What happens on foreign policy? There's a lot to talk about, so I am delighted to welcome the Gargoxal. Gar is Crisis Group's Turkey project director. She oversees our office in Istanbul and all of our work related to Turkey. She herself has uh, extensive experience writing about and researching both regional and domestic security matters uh, in that country, and its uh, intricate uh, and complex relationships with its neighbors and beyond. Nagar, welcome back to War and Peace.
1: Thank you very much, Odia, for having me back on.
0: So, Erdogan won pretty comfortably um, in the end. Uh, what do you think helped him win? Why did the opposition, which seemed so confident of victory, in the end fail?
1: Well, it's a complex question. and I think both the opposition parties and uh, the rest of the world are trying to take stock of, um, of the reasons. But it's clear that, that President Erdogan is very good at playing the emotional chords of society. He both inspired his base that um, he was in the best position to to protect the integrity of the state, of the homeland, and of the Turkish family. He created um, an impression that this was going to be the century of Turkey beginning, um, sort of a an inspirational message to so-called patriots, that the powers that tried to subjugate Turkey for centuries uh, are going to be fended off. He also pointed to the opposition not having the competence or the capability to bring about coherent policies to fix the, the difficult problems that Turkey faces, both economically and in the region, and, um, and, and presented himself as best man to, to fend off enemies from both inside and out um Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu on the other hand was presiding over a six-party alliance a group of different um ideologically geared segments of society that essentially were united just to to get the president Erdogan out of the position of power and um, bring about checks and balances um he embraced rhetoric that um was uniting but I think it also, to some degree, turned people off because the very groups that he was trying to unite are in some ways pit against each other. So you have the Social Democrats standing alongside the liberal Islamists, the not-so-liberal Islamists, the Turkish nationalists. And then, of course, the Kurdish nationalists were not sitting with the alliance, but clearly supporting him from a little bit of a distance. Um, and it seemed like a fractured group to observers. And... And the fears that they wouldn't be able to govern the complexities that Turkey faces seem to have prevailed. Though, of course, I mean, they did, they did put up a good fight where 48% is still, um, a strong showing for particularly a, an alliance that's led by an Alevi social democrat. So there was also ideological challenge, let's say, that the, that the opposition alliance faced where, um, the the Alevis are a sort of stigmatized and marginalized minority branch or, or current of Islam that you know, traditionally have been discriminated against, and so having having such a diverse group of people in Turkey vote for
0: an Ale- Alevi social democrat was in itself surprising to some. So the opposition in Turkey was able to unite enough to get forty eight percent of the vote. But, you know, the history is that it's diverse. And as you said, a lot of different views. Is there going to be more unity amongst the opposition or less going forward?
1: Well, the very fact that what united them was to transform the system into a parliamentary system where institutions were going to be stronger and a single-person decision-making was no longer going to um, continue – means that now that now that the president Adon has has regained his position it you know, that that uniting goal no longer really makes sense for the opposition at least for the next five years unless there's an early election that objective can hardly keep them glued together so i think it's a it's yet to be seen uh, frankly um i think it's a little too early to tell but it's possible that um the opposition can also splinter and um pursue their own agenda separately moving forward in the parliament.
0: And the nationalists uh, did well in this year's election. How do you explain that? And do you think they're going to continue to strengthen?
1: Yeah, the, the, the sort of nationalist Islamist fusion of, of of those two strands of society, it's, it's quite consolidated. So, A majority, even if a narrow majority, mostly composed of nationalist conservative segments of society, gave a stamp of approval to President Erdogan and his way of protecting the values and interests of the country. And this suggests, or at least increases, the likelihood of continuity. Um, The fact that the right wing had such a strong showing um, could very well embolden President Erdogan to continue with more of the same. Um, another reason I would expect continuity was that President Erdogan's victory speech was, was also quite polarizing, still demonizing LGBTs and, and Western media and so-called affiliates of, um, of terrorists, like the, the pro-Kurdish movement. Uh, even though he no longer needs their votes, of course, this is, can, was also read as a sign that he might be preparing the grounds already for the local elections that are coming up next year. So even though one big election is passed, the objective of winning Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality back next year is still a looming objective. Um I mean, one thing that really resonated with the voters was the perceived threat that Turkey is going to be instrumentalized per, primarily by the West and is sort of playing on this age-old deep fear of the threats to the integrity of the country. And um, one can assume that this is going to continue. But then you also have some factors that that might bring into question the Uh, the durability of this approach, um, one is the economy where, I mean, the biggest challenge that President Erdogan is going to face now is to restore the economy. And given Turkey's economic dependencies with the Turkish Central Bank, you know, having um, a very low, um, U.S. dollar stock right now, how will, how will dependence be avoided is a question where um, if, if Turkey is trying to escape dependence on the West, who are they going to be dependent on? Is it going to be Russia? Is it going to be Saudi Arabia? You know, somehow uh, what options are going to be presented to President Erdogan to recover the economy might actually be a decisive in terms of how he decides to recalibrate.
0: And, I mean, what do you see... And in terms of other impacts on Turkey's domestic politics, anything we missed in this conversation? I mean, one interesting
1: dimension was was the the Kurdish issue, where there was a very steadfast approach by the ruling alliance to marginalize and discredit and criminalize the pro-Kurdish left-wing movement, the HDP, which ran under a different party name, Yeshiso parts, sorry. Um but at the same time you had a a, a different Kurdish nationalist group that was uh joined the alliance a party that joined the alliance the ruling alliance, Hudapar. Now Hudapar is is a new a new phenomenon, let's say, in the Turkish parliament. Um Hudapar is a Kurdish nationalist yet also extremist Islamist, let's say, party with supposed links to Iran's Hezbollah. Supposedly also involved in acts of violence, particularly in the 1990s. Now, there are a lot of questions being raised about why, why AKP included Hudapara in its alliance. They only got four parliament members, so it's not high, but it does raise questions as to whether President Erdogan might pursue a policy of reaching out to Kurds on a basis of uh, Islamic bonding of, um, uh, sort of accommodating the identity of Kurds, uh, the Kurdish uh, constituencies, uh, with, with, with actors that are loyal to, to him and the state, the, the glue of which might be Islamic solidarity.
0: And what about Syrian refugees? Um, towards the end of the campaign period, the opposition talked about kicking out Syrian refugees, uh, Erdogan. Um, also seems to be, let's say, committed to repatriation on a fairly large scale. What's going on with that? Does the election rhetoric suggest that indeed there's going to be a lot of pressure for Syrians to leave? Well, as crisis group, uh, the Turkey office, we've written a
1: number of reports on, on Syrian ref- refugees over the last uh, five, six years. And we do see that the hostility to to Syrian refugees or more, more more like a desire that they return to Syria is a really strong uniter um across the political spectrum in Turkey. There's a there's a scorn of Syrians for exploiting state resources, supposedly, for taking jobs, straining public services, increasing rent prices. There's also a perception that they're disrupting the social fabric. I mean, as far as we know it's not very transparent, but there were around 200,000 people who voted for, in this election that were Syrians have become Turkish citizens. Um, Erdogan himself claims that, or, or the Turkish state claims that around 600,000 have voluntarily returned. And his pledge was that he would send back one million more next year after a, a appropriate housing and, and safety conditions were provided. Um, on the opposition, on the other hand, had a had a more hawkish position, saying, you know, immediately all of them are going to be sent back, which is not very realistic. Now there are a couple of um of reasons why I think the Turkish public may have been convinced that Erdogan would be able to send back the numbers that he claims he could, which is not all, but, you know, incrementally part by part sending them back is that, you know, one of them is a normalization process with Assad where, uh, I mean, I think it's one of Turkey's objectives in in pursuing this dialogue with, um, with Damascus is to one ensure that more assaults on Syrians in the Northwest don't take place via the regime and and sort of Russia-supported assaults, but also to ensure that the Damascus regime is going to accommodate refugees being sent back in Turkey-controlled areas uh, safely. So I think there's going to be an effort to pursue that objective in a piecemeal way. And to the extent that the opposition really became hawkish with, with regard to Syrians, it did turn off some segments as well. Not really in Turkey, but, but it raised eyebrows also in the West. And that sort of nationalistic tone or ethno-nationalistic tone that the opposition leader took on in between the two presidential rounds uh, did not go down very well among some segments. You see the Kurds even, well, particularly the Kurds in the Southeast, turning out less in the second round. So the first round was 87% turnout, second round was 85% turnout, but that 2% seems to have been concentrated on in the Southeast, where the nationalist, the underscoring of nationalist rhetoric wasn't necessarily welcome.
0: What about the future of the PKK conflict uh, with another Erdogan term? Uh, We talked a little bit about the Kurdish parties. Uh, Do you think there's any chance of the actual fighting coming to a stop? Frankly, we
1: don't see any inclination of the hardline approach towards PKK and its so-called affiliates changing in Ankara. Um, it seems that the operations are set to continue until, until and unless, as they say, uh, the PKK concedes to end its insurgency in Turkey. I would also think that there are possibilities that there's going to be a, a more escalation in Northeast Syria, where to the degree that President Erdogan and Assad can agree, there might be small scale operations led by the regime in, in northeast Syria and certain pockets where the YPG or PYD or SDF, however we want to call it, is situated. So I see probably the likelihood of an increase um, uh, more of the same with even a
0: little bit of a higher uh, rates. Okay. That's kind of depressing. Um, and for foreign policy, We've, you know, we've seen Erdogan pursue his view of, uh, you know, what a Turkish foreign policy needs to be a much more uh, proactive, assertive policy in which Turkey increases weapon exports around the world, but also uh, selectively supplies partners uh, in Libya and the South Caucasus. Can Can this go on? I mean, is this what We're going to see more of the same on this front, too. And does the economy constrain the possibilities at all?
1: Under Erdogan's
0: leadership, Turkey has become a more activist
1: middle power, more assertive in defending its interests, and more defiant against what they perceive as U.S. or European rules or norms that are are supposedly hypocritical or double standard. And I think that's not going to change. I think another thing that isn't going to change... Is a logic that is, seems settled in, in Turkey, um, that Ankara must work closely with regional actors and solve regional problems with regional partners, um, not with the US, not with France, not with countries that swoop in from afar, that don't understand the dynamics and don't have a, a commitment to the results. They don't have the implications of things that go wrong, don't necessarily them. So I think that that logic is really present. But I also think that some of the best and the brightest uh, in Ankara, who are still in official positions, think that it's still in Turkey's interest to be in the league of the most advanced countries, if nothing else, to better advance its own objectives, (laughs) objectives of greatness, or to provide a better living for its people. So two reasons that the, you know, there might be recalibration. Again, I don't, I wouldn't claim to say it will. But one is to the extent that Turkey breaks out of the perceived bondage of the West, Turkey might have a risk of being more reliant on other actors that are also fickle partners. And um, that cherished strategic autonomy might not actually be attained if the leverages are passing on to another actor in the region that's not necessarily aligned with Turkey in terms of its interests. So I think there could be some reconsideration of how much the pendulum needs to swing against the West and two other partners. I also think that there are areas where Turkey, to compete with other regional actors, be it Russia or Gulf countries or, or Iran or else uh, elsewhere in Central Asia or Africa, might realize that the economic resources of Turkey or its hard power might not suffice to actually compete with these regional actors. So there may come a point, or there may be some geographies, where Turkey and the West can still see that it's more advantageous for them to work together rather than at cross purposes. Again, too early to tell, but those would be the kind of reasons that I think might draw Turkey into um, a more constructive dialogue with Western partners to cooperate.
0: As I understand it, one of the first things that U.S. President Biden mentioned to President Erdogan after the election results were counted was Sweden joining NATO? Do you think that uh, Turkey will uh, will drop its opposition to Swedish membership in the alliance? I, mean, I think the shortest term
1: issue on the table is going to be Sweden's NATO membership because there has been a strong expectation that once the election passes, that Ankara um, greenlights Sweden's membership. Many, many, including myself, thought this was almost can be taken for granted. But I mean, statements coming out of Ankara still suggest that there might be a little bit of hardball. I still think that Sweden implementing some of the counter terror steps that, that Turkey's demanded can increase the likelihood that Turkey will admit their membership. I think the cost-benefit assessment of Ankara probably, probably should suggest that they will. Um, because if Ankara does overplay its hand, I, I think it's going to not be worthwhile. There are particular demands that Ankara has, such as extradition from Sweden, that I don't think are realistic because of the state of the judicial dependence of of the Turkish courts. So, in um, know this could really become an intractable problem with implications that have also have strong fallout for Turkey. I I would tend to say more likely than not that Turkey will go ahead and. Um, the obstacles that's posed to Sweden's membership.
0: What do you think Erdogan is worrying about as he looks ahead to the next five years? What do you think are his biggest concerns at home and abroad?
1: I mean, I think, I think there have been times in the last couple of years where Erdogan has displayed an interest in resetting relations with the West. He wasn't willing to carry out Particularly the domestic political conditions that that might have entailed. It didn't happen, but I still think that he, um, does not want to be left out on a limb with Russia in the region. I I think, I think there's a a recognition that Turkey still needs alliances, both economic and uh, hard security wise. And so that brinkmanship of how far can I go and still have the different sides willing to accommodate my demands. I think that's a, it's a fragile balance. I think the risk would be that, um, if the West decides that Turkey is not going to be an, a, a reliable partner and starts hedging or uh, becoming less, less reliant on Turkey, then being left Exposed in the region, with other powers having the uh, stronger hands, and the the groups within his leadership might have different lean in different directions when when push comes to shove on certain issues. And managing managing the coalition that is that is the Turkish state, not just the parliament or the the cabinet, I, I think is a is a challenge. He's managed it very well to date, but it's not going to be one that gets any easier.
0: Okay. And is uh, is Turkey going to keep trying to play a role in the war between Ukraine and Russia? I assume they're going to try to keep the grain deal afloat. Will they be trying to mediate? What do you think will happen?
1: I think by and large, there's a, the Turkey deems its role in that conflict as having been the best possible under the circumstances. Um, probably they're going to continue trying to tread that thin line. Um, and still continue to support Ukraine's territorial integrity and sovereignty and yet also keep Russia, uh, in, in the fold for all the other reasons that Russia has interests in Turkey. Uh, it's, it yeah, I, I would expect continuation. I think one challenge that might be coming up is Council of Europe, where there's certain verdicts of the European Court of Human Rights that If they're not implemented, and I think they've been waiting, um, for the elections before taking any stark moves, but there may be action there in response to Turkey's not carrying out its responsibilities and, and, and where that will lead, I don't know, because, you know, having Turkey binded to the European Court of Human Rights is in the interests of Turkish Democrats and many others alike. But yet there's also might be a a line after which Turkey, if Turkey crosses, then, you know, there there, there may be groups within the Council of Europe that no longer support Turkey's uh, membership there. So I think that, you know, there may be a new challenge brewing on that front.
0: So it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, I think there's a lot more that we could have discussed. Uh, Sadly, we're out of time. But I expect that we will continue talking about this uh, in the future. So, Nagar, thank you so much for joining and hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much, Julia. To read more from Nagar, you can follow her on Twitter at nagargoxel. You could also read her and her team's work on Turkey and uh, Turkey's engagement around the world on our website, www.crisisgroup.org. I would encourage uh, you to follow Crisis Group on Twitter. It's at Crisis Group. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Olya Oliker. I'm also at Olya on Mastodon. Big thanks to our producer, Alex Vygorsky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub who make sure that all of this actually falls into place for each recording. Our biggest thanks, however, as always, uh, are going out to you, to our listeners, and uh, want to encourage you, as I always do, that if you have thoughts or suggestions, please email them to us at podcast.crisisgroup.org can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts uh, we do read the reviews uh, and uh, it's interesting for us to uh hear what you think um to ensure you don't miss an episode don't forget to subscribe uh if you haven't already war and peace is on all the main podcast platforms so thank you very much for joining us uh, and we're looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks until then though goodbye